So I'm going to ask this morning that you take out your Bibles and we are in the book of Galatians. So we've started a study in the book of Galatians. And so there is the PowerPoint already behind me. Galatians chapter 2 verses, it should be 1 to 10. I don't know, that's a 20 appeared there. That happens, but it's really 1 to 10 is what it's supposed to be. 2, 1 to 10. You know, there's a constant struggle for unity in the church. When you talk to pastors across the city of Saskatoon, across the provinces, across Canada, it doesn't matter where you go, you usually hear the same story. There is a struggle for unity in the church. And as we struggle today in that area of unity, the church has always struggled throughout time in that area of unity. Galatians, the letter that we're looking at, that God directed Paul to write to the churches in the area of Galatia. They were struggling in that area of unity. These churches are located in modern-day Turkey is where we would place uh, this area of, of Galatia back in Paul's day. Paul had planted the churches there. He had spent considerable time planting these churches. And, and he had just kind of like left them. And already that area of disunity, the struggle for unity was already surfacing. The churches were composed of people from different cultures. This was, we could say, a Roman area, Greek area. So the people were coming from different cultures. They were accepting Christ. They were forming the church. When you accept the Lord Jesus Christ, you become the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church, not a building, but people gathering together, ecclesia. That's the church. So from different cultures, they, of course, were coming from different belief systems. Because Christianity, Christ had just died. So this was, we could say, new but the threads, the prophecies, the truth of the gospel weaves all the way back through the Old Testament right to the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned. And then, of course, also in the process, there were Jews because the Jews were spread out throughout the known world. And they come with not necessarily the gospel, but God used them and wanted to use the Jews to be salt and light to the world. So that's the setting. Conflict was inevitable. And it's easy to lose sight of the gospel. Grace is at the heart of the gospel message. When I think of that, I'm reminded, and I, you know, same thing has happened to me, but, but I was reminded of a young man who called a hotel in Alberta in the mountains to make a reservation. He was planning on surprising his wife with a romantic weekend getaway, and the hotel clerk asked if he wanted a lake view or a mountain view because there was a price difference. The young man asked, what is the difference? The hotel clerk assured him that the rooms were exactly the same. 
But the hotel clerk said, the one room looks out over the lake, the other room looks out over mountains. You know, the area of grace is something like that. One view of grace sees legalism as part of the gospel. Another view of grace can be freedom without boundaries. But we have to get back to what grace is. How is grace expressed might be a good question to ask. And expressions of grace can be influenced by cultural diversity of our world. We need to realize that. The church is an expression of unity in the midst of diversity. That's what it's supposed to be. And so look around. Look around here this morning. And as you look around the congregation, you see diversity, don't you? Different ethnic groups, different ages, different wealth. Like it's, We are a group that is very diverse. And yet we've gathered together. And there's a unity. There's to be a unity in the church. Paul was called by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter had been called by God to bring the gospel to the Jews. So we see a diversity there. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. Basically, we would say a Bible scholar of that day. He had studied under the tutelage of a very learned Jewish teacher, Gamaliel. Today, we might say that Paul has a doctorate in Bible and Judaism. But God changed Paul's life direction on the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, Paul was an enforcer for the Jewish faith, empowered by the priests to weed out any false teachings or incongruent behavior in reference to the Jewish faith. But Paul met Jesus on that road to Damascus. And at that moment, his life changed. He didn't only meet Jesus, but he was commissioned by Jesus to present the good news, that's the gospel about Jesus Christ, to the Gentiles. From a Jewish perspective, we have to realize this. And, and so we see the church, if we realize and remember, the church was birthed in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The church was birthed among Jewish people. And Jesus was a Jew. So we need to put all of this together. But the church is not to be Jewish. That's a culture, a people group. But from a Jewish perspective, there are two kinds of people in this world, Jews and non-Jews. It's that simple to them. And so their concept was, to come to God, you had to become a Jew. Because the one group of people was a chosen people, and the others aren't. And so that this context again of what we're looking at, we need to realize, though, and this is what the letter 
to the Galatian churches is all about. Paul wants to assure the believers, the Christians, that the gospel does not change even in different cultures. The gospel doesn't change. And so Paul tells his story. Oh, I'm sure, I'm really sure that the churches in Galatia have heard his story before. I'm very sure of that. Because Paul probably would have told his story again and again and again because he wanted people to realize that when you encounter Jesus, there's a change that occurs in your life. And so here in Galatians chapter 1, Paul begins again telling his story. He doesn't always tell it the same way, but he tells it. Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 to 17, he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. You see, he told this story before. And he's reminding them of this story you know, and stories help us to again get centered in the right place. So, you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So here you see the encounter with Jesus, the shift towards Jesus, and then the commission. I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. You see, that encounter with God was such a powerful encounter. And it meant such a tremendous shift in Paul's life view, in Paul's world view and in behavior, that Paul had to take some time out. Sometimes we send our young people or our young people go to Bible school after graduating from high school, and it's a time out. It's a time where they can spend learning about Jesus in this culture of Bible school where they can grow deep and have their roots planted so that when they step out again into the world, they have a good foundation to stand on. Well, there was no Bible schools, of course, in Paul's time. Not Christian Bible schools, not in the way we're thinking. So Paul goes into the desert, and there in the desert, he is taught through the Scriptures, because Paul, the only Scriptures that were there at that time, of course, was the Old Testament. And Paul is a Pharisee. Paul is one who has studied under Gamaliel. Believe it or not, in Quizzers, believe it or not, Paul had the entire Old Testament memorized. In fact, they say that a good Pharisee could even recite it backwards. So Paul knew the Old Testament. So through the Holy Spirit's leading and the Old Testament, Paul saw Christ 
again and again and again and again. And he saw the path of grace woven through time. For the world where Paul was presenting the gospel, they had never heard of the gospel. I don't know if we can even imagine what it would be like to hear the gospel in that type of a cultural context. For us, the gospel is somewhat familiar for our world. If I say for in the North American world, they might not understand the gospel, but people have heard the name of Jesus. And they have their own thoughts and concepts of that. But in Paul's day, and the Gentiles that Paul was bringing the gospel to, there would have been nothing. You know, they say, again, Google's so wonderful. You know, I did a little Google. I was just wondering, you know, I wonder how many times a person has to hear the gospel before the gospel begins to make sense. You can get a lot of different numbers on Google. So, you know, I'll grab a really conservative number three times. So one has to hear the gospel three times before a person is ready to accept the truth. But Paul meets the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is baptized. He heads out to the desert and he tries to reconcile everything together so that he can go out and proclaim the gospel to people who have no idea at all what the gospel even is. After three years, and you can read this, I'm not going to read it. After three years, Paul does go to Jerusalem, and there he meets with James, Jesus' half-brother. He's the head of the church. And he meets with Peter. Remember Peter? We'd say maybe disciple number one. I don't know if that's right or not. It's between Peter and John, isn't it? Like who's disciple number one? But he meets with them for 15 days. And then he goes back to Syria and Cilicia. So he goes back north again. And I would imagine that during that time, he was doing the checks and balances. I've been three years in the desert with God's word and the Holy Spirit. Have I heard correct? Am I in the right place today? And he leaves and he goes north to Syria and Cilicia and there he presents the gospel for 14 years. So he's planting churches for 14 years. And as he's planting churches, something happens. The unity is challenged. So here we are, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. We read, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting, and meeting a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. 
continues in verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who is with me, was compelled to be circumcised. And even though he was a Greek, this matter rose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This he's writing to the churches in Galatia later. So this unity and the gospel gets challenged. It's happening today too, even in our culture. And the challenges are in reference to the love of Jesus. If God really loves us, would he send anyone to hell? There's a question. You know, so we're being challenged, we could say, by culture. And you can think of many other ways that we're being challenged by culture. The churches are growing. False believers have infiltrated the church. Jews have come to know Christ, but they're holding on to the Jewish culture. Of course, Gentiles are coming to know Christ. And they might be holding on to some culture too. But these false believers, the Jews, were not accepted by Jewish leaders because they believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And so they were looking for a place of acceptance. And they were proclaiming a different gospel. They were proclaiming a gospel of Jesus plus. We looked at that last week. We need to realize the gospel does not change. It's good news. Salvation is based on grace, and grace finds its foundation or power in Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus paid the price for our sin. He redeemed us. In other words, he purchased us back. See, when we gave in to sin we all of a sudden moved in the area of kingdoms. And we're told in the scriptures that the prince of this world is Satan. And through our sin, we moved under this other kingdom. We were gods. God created us. But we chose. And you're saying, I didn't choose. Well, in your genes... Going way back, a choice was made, and we repeat that choice when we deny Jesus. And we shifted in kingdoms. So Jesus buys us back. He pays the price, the ransom price, and we move back. He pays the price for our sin. He redeems us. There's a number of different pieces that all come together. Don't get hung up on just one piece. I'll say that right now. Whether the gospel is presented to Jews or to Gentiles, it does not change. The gospel stays the same in all cultures throughout time. So when we share the gospel, we need to make sure that we are sharing the gospel and not something that we have added to the gospel. That is so important. And it's always good to be accountable. 
Because this is one way to make sure that we are sharing the gospel. And we see that accountability in Paul. We see that. You see, Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. He goes out into the desert for three years. He comes back to Jerusalem and he meets there with with James and Peter. Then he goes north and for 14 years he plants churches. This disunity issue maybe is, is really kind of flourishing or something is happening there. And Paul wants to make sure that he is not running the race in vain, that he has not in some way deviated from the gospel. And so he goes back to Jerusalem. There's always the possibility that we can add something to the gospel. It can happen. It's easy. It's easy. Sometimes we add something to the gospel because we love someone so much and we want them to be in heaven that we soften something. I think we've all found ourselves in those places. When, the, when we add to the gospel, what we end up is, is uh, changing it. You know, if we add, let's say, works or something like that, it's really self-righteousness. And when we take something away from the gospel, we're removing holiness. Holiness is the concept of being separated unto God. And when we remove holiness from the gospel, we're diluting the grace of God. And when we add to the gospel, we're diluting the grace of God. So the gospel, just think of the gospel as a road and there's ditches on both sides. The gospel doesn't change. You can't wander into one ditch or into the other ditch because the moment you do, you've wandered away from the gospel. So people, false believers, had infiltrated the church to spy out this grace that was taking place there. This grace that changed people's lives gave them freedom. They were not slaves to sin anymore. Their lives were actually being changed and transformed. But the checks and the balances had to happen. And Paul submits to those checks and balances. In fact, Paul takes the initiative for those checks and balances. And when there is conflict in the church, it does give leadership an opportunity to do checks and balances. But just because there's opposition doesn't mean you stop doing that which you believe God called you to do. That which you believe is the truth. And so it tells us, Paul tells us in our passage that he did not stop, not even for an hour, he did not stop. He continued to present the gospel that he believed God gave to him. But he also did the checks and the balances. And so Paul, 
Again, Paul doesn't work in isolation. Sometimes we think, and we talk about Paul and all the red letters that God directed Paul to write, and we just think of just Paul, this, this lone crusader out there. But Paul is not a lone crusader. He works with team. And so Paul takes with him Barnabas and Titus, and they go to Jerusalem. So Barnabas and Titus along with Paul, to meet with the leadership. And there he lays out very clearly through words and example the gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles. Barnabas. Why would Paul take Barnabas? Because Barnabas goes right back to the Jerusalem church. He goes right back to, we could say, the beginning. He was not a, dis not a disciple of Jesus. He was not one of the 12, I would say. Okay? But he's right there at the beginning of the church. And Barnabas is not his real name. His real name is Joseph, and he's a Levite. So that means he's of the priestly line. Why did he get the name ben, uh, 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 Barnabas? Because of his character. Son of encouragement. That's what the word Barnabas means. And so here we have Barnabas, right back at the, who was at the very beginning, and who was faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, who reflected the character of Jesus, and was known by the people as a man of faith and example. So he takes Barnabas with him. Because Barnabas was right alongside him preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And then he takes Titus. Titus is a Greek convert. Titus heard the gospel. He accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He receives Jesus, and in that he does not feel compelled to be circumcised or become a Jew in any way whatsoever. And Barnabas, who was working alongside Paul, did not ask the new converts to take on any of the Jewish traditions, any of the Jewish faith. He brought Barnabas and Titus along so that there would be credibility. And he wanted the leadership to hear what was really happening. And the results were, here we are. So what are the results? Galatians 2, verses 6 to 10. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. Okay, so he's saying, it doesn't matter. They were the church leaders. You know that? Okay, so they continue. They added, here it is, they added nothing to my message. They added nothing. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who has a work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. So there you go. The church went and really recommissioned Paul to continue what he was doing. Continue with the gospel. 
There's one true gospel, and that gospel unites. And we see that uniting happening right there with James, the half-brother of Jesus, as the church leader, with Peter and John, the three key leaders in Jerusalem. And they embrace Paul. And they acknowledge God's calling upon his life and the gospel message that's going out, that salvation is by grace. And to be saved, you don't have to become a Jew. The gospel unites us across ethnic lines. We'll see that again later in the book of Galatians because Galatians 3 verse 8 says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The grace that is given to Paul is the same grace that was given or experienced by James when he repented and believed in Jesus. Because up until Jesus' death, James rejected his brother Jesus, his half-brother. That could not be possible. That could not be true. All of those things. That same grace that was given to Peter is the same grace that Paul is preaching. That grace, if you remember, that brought, we could say, forgiveness to Peter... Peter denied Jesus three times and Jesus forgave him. That same grace is the grace that John encountered and he lived out. And the promises that Jesus made to John in the area of longevity and life and ministry. Grace was never connected to Jewish culture or to religious rules. The grace of Jesus was connected to the acknowledgement of sin and the dependence upon Jesus' work of salvation on the cross. The gospel is independent of culture. When grace is actually presented, it makes a difference in the lives of people. So we see the final instructions, and I didn't put them up there at the time, but the final instructions, you see, because there is some final instructions the church gives to Paul, and the final instructions are that Paul, as he preaches the gospel, is to minister to the poor. You see, that's so different than we would say the prosperity gospel that's so different than our maybe selfishness that exists, our desire for wealth. We're not to be asking for wealth, but we are to be giving our wealth, the things of this world, away to the needy so the kingdom would grow. James puts it so well in James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The gospel, there's the verse here, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. A reinforcement the gospel changes our orientation. And we turn 
in that area of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and, eight and 9, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The gospel changes our orientation. And we move from self-love to loving others. And we love them because we want to see them in heaven. We want them to know Jesus Christ. And so we give self Leslie, we just give, give, give so that people will see Jesus. So what have we learned so far? The gospel changes our orientation. The gospel doesn't change, but the gospel changes us. There will be differences and disagreements within the church. But it's important that we keep the gospel pure. That we don't add stuff to it. And we don't take stuff away. We are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And of course... That means there will be gospel clashes with our culture. We will clash with our culture. The church has clashed with culture since the very beginning. And it will continue until Christ returns. The gospel stays the same, but our culture changes. So let me ask you a question. Just for a moment, stop and just reflect. Is it possible that you have taken on some of our culture? Is it possible that you've embraced some of our culture? It's very possible. Well-meaning Christians can do that. I want to encourage you to let it go. To let it go. Just bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, This morning as we've looked at your word and the realization that it's so easy for our culture to seep into the gospel. 
Father, I would ask that your Holy Spirit would just walk us through an examination of our lives. And Father, if we've taken on something from culture in that area of of values, then Father, show us. And then help us, Father, to graciously step away from that. Father, help us to demonstrate your love and your grace in a culture that is in opposition to you. Father, help us to walk faithfully with you. Thank you for this, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The worship team is going to come and they're going to lead us in singing a final song, Hope of the Nations. So true. The gospel is for all nations. For all people.